1: Hello, welcome to the New Books in African-American Studies podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in conversation today with my distinguished guest, Professor Chris Henning. Chris Henning is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown University Law School. We are here today to discuss her new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, published in New York by Pantheon Books 2021. Chris, uh, it's my humble honor to be in dialogue with you today.
0: I feel the same way. Thank you so much for having me, Ari.
1: Thank you. It's a blessing to be in dialogue with you and to have read your book. And I just wanted to thank you for everything that you invested in it in light of personal sacrifice, and in regard to the time, investment, research, and personal endeavor that went into this.
0: Thank you so much. (laughs) I care passionately about the topic, so uh, the investment came naturally.
1: Absolutely, as do I. That's why I'm so lucky to be in touch with you today. To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired you to become a lawyer and a scholar?
0: So I am um, originally from the South, I say, the Southern part of, of um The United States. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, and then lived in what I call my formative years in North Carolina and in a relatively small town in North Carolina um, at that. And so that, in and of itself, you know, means that I am a Black American raised in the South, which is, in and of itself, a defining demographic. Uh, uh, criteria. Um, But I I grew up with parents who cared deeply about social justice issues, and um, they also cared about young people. My mother was a professor of early childhood education, and my father, although he was a businessman, a sort of traditional um, uh, business uh, person in management, he also cared about young people and would engage with young people at our local church, for example, hosting a Friday night group um, with young boys um, in the neighborhood. And so I think I always grew up thinking about people who were um, economically less fortunate than I was um, thinking about um, socio-political causes that were important around racial equity and um, my parents cared a lot about schooling and educating their children. So I think for me, that's really sort of formative and led me in many ways to, to law school. And then ultimately to a focus on representing children as a lawyer.
1: What inspired you to write this book?
0: So I have been representing children um, accused of delinquency in Washington DC for the last 26 years and in that entire time I have only represented four white children which is just an absolutely absurd statistic. It would lead you to believe either that there are no white children in Washington DC or that white children don't commit crime and so I um, really wanted to write this book to reflect on um, you know, just the, the reasons why we have such extreme racial disparities in our country. And I also wanted to know, and this is, I think, the most important thing, I wanted to know, um, you know, why um, or how those racial disparities and this decriminalization of Black children is what I talk about in the book, how it was impacting um, Black children developmentally, mentally, Um, emotionally, uh, physically even. And so that's what this book really uh, explores.
1: What message do you hope your readers will glean from this book?
0: I hope everyone walks away recognizing and really remembering that Black children are children too. Really, that is the ultimate message. And that Um, when we think about uh, how we respond to normal adolescent behaviors among children of color, we need to treat them, um, Black children, as if they were any other child. Um, And so I hope that readers will see themselves in this book, um, read some of the stories that I write about, about young children that I represented, um, children, um, high-profile examples of other children that, I, I, um, that we've heard about in the news, I want them, the readers to see themselves in these stories and say, I did that when I was a kid or my own child did that and we didn't get arrested. And, um, and, and at, I hope that's a way that readers will become invested in making a difference.
1: Where do you situate this book among current writing and research on this topic? How do you distinguish your contribution from the contributions that other scholars and journalists have made and are making to this topic?
0: Yeah. So there, um, that's a great question. There are a lot of wonderful, um, insightful books about, uh, the, the criminal legal system in our country and um, some books about policing that have been great that speak specifically, I think, to um, you know criminal justice issues writ large, Locking Up Our Own by James Forman, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, chokehold by Paul Butler, Policing the Black Man, which is an anthology edited by Angela Davis. But um, my book, um, enters this space um, with a focus on the policing of adolescents, right, and the policing of Black children in particular. And I think that requires a special telling. And when I talk about policing of adolescents, I'm not just talking about police officers in a blue uniform, but I'm talking about all of us, right, all of us um, as civilians, um, you know, who walk through a park, um, walk through city streets and find ourselves afraid of Black children. Um, and so we th- we need to be thoughtful about how we're all policing by proxy. And so um, I think this book adds to the, the, the body of literature that is there by focusing on specifically the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors um, as one broad theme. Another broad theme is the the hyper surveillance and aggressive policing of Black children. And then the third, you know, theme that I think I add to the discourse is the unique ways in which Black children are dehumanized, even when they engage in, um, you know, real Criminal behavior, not that normal adolescent behavior that we have decided to criminalize, but even when children engage in, you know, serious, you know, violent offenses, that we have um, learned how to be um, to take a rehabilitative response, to be graceful and corrective when we're dealing with whites children who've committed serious crime, but we tend to dehumanize um, Black children by uh, prosecuting them as adults and imposing severe sentences um, that treat them as if they're beyond redemption.
1: Can you share with us some of the adversities you personally went through during the writing, editing, research process that went into this book, how did you grow from the challenges involved in bringing a book from idea to publication? Can you share anything autobiographical about the writing, researching, and editing process, what it says about you, and how you overcame those difficulties?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting to think about it as adversities, (laughs) because I write an entire book about adversities that my clients and other black and brown Mm. youth have experienced. Um, But yes, um, there were many challenges that I, um, you know, experienced. I mean, right, you know, I could think of, you know, several things. One is I'm a law professor, right? I'm a lawyer and an academic, and we are trained to write a certain way. Um, And uh, we write with legalese and and big words. And I really wanted to write a book that would be accessible to a mainstream audience, right? Um, And that would change hearts and minds of everyone. Um, And so I wanted to write a book that could be read by the teenagers who are impacted themselves, um, a book that could be read by lawmakers, teachers, um, judges, prosecutors, as well as just, you know, an everyday person, a neighbor, um, a community leader. Um, And so I I struggled with that. I'll be honest with you, Ari. Um, I I wrote the book and I would have, our drafts of, of various chapters, and I would share them with friends and my friends would say, Eh, you know, I think you could, you know, uh, rewrite this section a, a little bit. So I learned a lot. I grew a lot um, in writing this book and writing in a way that would engage with um, all of society. Um, what was my hope? And I did that by telling stories and then weaving those stories together with um, research and data. But research and data told in plain language. And so that was one thing that I learned. Um, Another challenge that I experienced was that um, I, like I said, I tell a lot of stories in the book. And so I had to revisit those stories, right? Revisit stories about my clients. So I might pull up old police reports um, uh, about some of my clients. um, And I really um, found myself um, in distress, um, it was painful to revisit that. And it made me realize, wow, if this is just, if, it, if this is just, this painful for me in retrospect, going back, um, I felt like I was experiencing some level of secondary trauma, if you will. Um, and I kept thinking to myself, wow, w- how painful and traumatic must this have been for my clients? at that time and with their families. Um, And so it just was, it it renewed some of that um, empathy um, and understanding that I had for my clients um, in that way. So that was the second thing. Um, A third challenge I think that I I faced was really, I had a strong, strong desire to preserve the integrity of the voices Um, of my clients, and of some of these high-profile cases that I write about, Tamir Rice, Mike Brown, uh, Jeremiah Harvey, and so I I, I wanted to honor their voices. I didn't want to impose my narrative on those stories, and so I um, lost a lot of sleep about making sure I did that well, but with regard to those high-profile cases, I spent a lot of time uh, going back listening to videos, watching interviews of the parents of the children who had been killed due to police violence or vigilante violence around um, race um, precisely because I wanted to reflect their voices and not just my voices, my assumptions about how they were feeling and experiencing the loss of their parents. Um, and then the final challenge I experienced in writing this book was, as you know, Ari, this book is in, in, in some ways biographical. Um, it is hard to be a a Black American and not have some contact, personal contact with the criminal legal system in some way or another. So I found that writing this book um, was bringing up for me some of my own um, personal family experiences with the legal system. My brother um, who was in the system, um, who spent a a great deal of time in prison. and, And so I never went into this book thinking that I would write about that. Um, and then, but as you, as I told those stories, it became impossible, you know, not to tell those stories. And so, you know, it was a challenge, but it was part of the healing process as well. Um,
1: Uh, you alluded to your brother and your brother indeed shows up in the book. Can you share with us, um, some details about your brother, what he went through, uh, what he experienced, and how his experience impacted you and your family.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, So, you know, this appears, you know, appears a little bit sporadically throughout the book, but it's most um, heavily, I believe, in chapter 11, the chapter I call um, the Black family in the era of mass incarceration. And um, that chapter for me was definitely the most painful chapter to write. You know, I cried quite a bit and, you know, had to put it down several times. And um, I have a, a uh, another brother um, that I don't well that I write about a little bit, but not in the same way that I had to share that chapter with um, so that, you know, I, I could be comfortable um, sharing our family story, you know, publicly in this book. And so, you know, um, as I said earlier, it's impossible really to grow up as, in uh, uh, grow up Black in America and not have some, you um, at least direct or indirect ties with the criminal legal system. And my family is no different. So my family was incarcerated for many years before he um, died. And he ultimately died in prison. um, And he had a double aneurysm in prison. Um, And so there were several things I think that I was grappling with as I was writing the book. It's one sort of trying to wrap my head around how is it on some level that. Um, he got involved in the criminal legal system and how he came to be arrested and how he did indeed commit, um, engage in some criminal behavior. Um, And, you know, we can never really answer that question. How do people get involved in um, criminal behavior? But one of the things that I do know is that my, you know, brother was a typical teenager, and he actually we grew up in a middle class family, um, uh, you know, educated, you know, household, and he was a like I said a typical teenager who did typical adolescent impulsive, reactive um, things things that were um, prompted by, you know, him wanting to fit in with his friends in the neighborhood or, you know, you know, in nearby neighborhoods. And so, um, you know, like other kids, he experimented with drugs and, you know, did some things that, you know, that he wouldn't be proud of, or, you know, even stealing. Um, And what I concluded, at least as it relates to this book, was that although he was engaged in those typical adolescent behaviors that other kids, you know, also of other races engage in, that police, you know, or the system targeted him. There's no room for grace and tolerance of those adolescent indiscretions. Um, And so he I, you know, one of the things that I say in the book is that maybe there was ultimately nothing wrong with him, but that society treated him as if something were wrong with him as if he were somehow uniquely deviant. Um, as compared to other teenagers. And I, I write about that a lot in the book, the ways black children are treated as deviant for normal adolescent behaviors. So that was one aspect of what I write about. The other aspect, and I, I think this is the most painful aspect and that I talk about in chapter 11, was that he you know, um, spent you know, time in prison, an extended period of time in prison and how painful that was as a sibling Um, to really just be disconnected from your family um, in that way when he was there. And when I was in college and law school, I wrote to my brother because, I mean, especially in law school, when I began visiting prisons as a young lawyer or aspiring lawyer and just realizing how, you know, terrible those facilities are and I wanted you know him to know that there was someone out there who cared about him. Um, you know, there's inadequate health care, and um, he had diabetes. And so he ultimately had an aneurysm in prison and you know, wasn't able to eat right. The culinary um, practices of the facilities are not geared towards somebody who is diabetic. And so um, really, he, you know, his fate was, severe, right? It was actually life-taking, not just, you know, we think about what does it mean to incarcerate them, to hold them accountable, Um, but we're incarcerating people in facilities that are really draconian um, and dehumanizing and actually more harmful than they are helpful in terms of advancing public safety.
1: In light of your your brother's story, I'd be curious to ask you about other forms of abuse that take place in prison, what kinds of cruelty have Black youths suffered in jail at the hands of fellow inmates and correction staff? And along these lines, you tell the story of Khalif in your book. Can you talk about Khalif in light of the suffering and cruelty that take place in jails?
0: Absolutely, and so you know, Khalif Browder was a um, a 16 year old boy who was arrested for robbery of a book of a of a book bag, right? Someone else's book bag. And what was so extraordinarily traumatic, tragic, and this was in New York, Bronx, New York. What was so extraordinary, traumatic about Khalif's story is that. Um, it is extremely, extremely likely that Khalif was completely innocent and never even took the book bag at all. Um, but even without us knowing specifically whether he was guilty or not guilty, the, the, the facts are that the complaining witness, the victim in that case, um, left the country within weeks of that robbery. In other words, he moved um, back home to his home country and never returned. So the impact of this is profound that the prosecutors who, okay, so the police officers arrest him, um, they charge him with robbery, they put him in jail and specifically they put him on the notorious Rikers Island. and he stayed on Rikers Island for three years wow. waiting for his trial date. Well, the significance of the fact that the complaining witness moved out of the country and was never coming back is huge. So the prosecutors at some point knew they had no victim and that he would not return. Um, Despite calls and efforts to get him back, he did not come back. So here's the tragedy. You've got a 16-year-old child in Rikers Island, Um, And although I should note Rikers Island is is known as an adult facility and and he was tried as an adult, he was held on a youth block with other young people. But I have to tell you that few environments pose a greater risk to healthy adolescent development than the toxic and isolating uh, setting of an adult prison or jail. Um, we seem to forget that uh, when we prosecute children as adults that they're still children. Um, They are particularly dangerous places for teenagers. Um, Young people face verbal and psychological intimidation. Um, They are the frequent victims of physical attacks um, by um, both inmates and staff. Um, Staff do very little to prevent uh, inmate on inmate violence in those facilities. Um, and sometimes the staff even participate. Khalif Browder in particular, there are videos of him being literally beaten um, by um, staff in, in, in Rikers Island. Um, Even when staff aren't engaged in that type of physical abuse, other young people are um, the the target of shackling um, excessive restraints, like shackling and restraint chairs that keep children strapped um, in position for extended periods of time. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's it's tragic. Um, Children um, face, you know, psychological trauma. Um, through unmerited discipline, extended periods of isolation, which they call um, solitary confinement. They're taunted, they're bullied. Young people are particularly at risk for sexual abuse. Um, You know, adult inmates and staff take advantage of a young person's um, size and powerlessness. Um, And so, you know, and even when there are federal laws, right, that protect young people um, from sexual abuse, the, the, the laws are routinely uh, violated um, when young people and adults are commingled in spaces together. Um, and so, you know, I gotta say that even when a young person is not the direct victim of physical or psychological, or f- victim of physical or sexual abuse, um, they also experience the trauma of just watching um, their other young people in the facility getting uh, uh, um. Victimized, right? And so it's just it's it's really really traumatic. And so Khalif Browder, um, like I said, spent three years in jail. Everybody should be just devastated by that fact. Um, waiting for his trial that never ever ever happened everyone is responsible for that. The prosecutors who didn't dismiss the case, the judges who didn't insist upon a speedy trial or dismissal, um, everybody who had their hands in this is at fault. So ultimately, Khalif Browder gets out after three years. Um, The judge finally ordered his release, um, but or excuse me, the prosecutor finally dismissed the case. But um, he was so psychologically traumatized by his three years in jail that he took his own life. And that's what's you know Khalif Browder really um, uh, you know it was known for. He actually hung himself out of his mother's um, you know uh, home, uh, a bedroom window upstairs in his mother's home, um, because he had endured such an extended period of trauma.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you for sharing that. Another connection in re- in, with respect to your brother and his, tra- his situation is the omnipresent theme in your book about the impact that incarceration has on siblings mm-hmm. of the imprisoned. Um, you point out in the book, um, stigma, shame, and isolation are recurring themes in many families with incarcerated children. Some even pretend their sibling died or never existed. Many youth discover they have become tar- the target of police scrutiny as a result of their siblings' arrest. Police in the family neighborhood, family's neighborhood assumes that the child must be destined for a life of crime because this is what your family does. Can you share more about the impact on siblings of having a brother or sister incarcerated?
0: Yes. Um, So, Ari, you know, that's another good question because there have been books, entire books written on the, um, the impact of parental incarceration on children. There have been very little writings on the impact of, of policing and incarceration on siblings. And so I began to take that on a little bit in, in this book. And, you know, I reflected on how my clients that I represented had experiences that were very similar to my own experience of having a brother in the system and so many of my clients um, had siblings who were impacted or clients themselves had older siblings um, who they had seen uh, uh, you know and, and felt that that pain and, and, and agony. So so what happens to a to a sibling? I mean I would say siblings um, cycle through a range of emotions right? Concerns about their sibling's safety. Once they learn that a child, one of their siblings, a brother or a sister has been arrested or detained, incarcerated. Um, they experience sadness at the loss of a friend and a companion, many of whom, you know, they share a, a room with at home. You know, they experience anxiety about having to visit a brother or a sister in jail or prison. And just imagine what that experience is like going into, yeah, you know, prisons and jails and being pat down and strip searched in order to visit with a, with a sibling, they experience shame and embarrassment um, about having a sibling in the system. Right. So like I, you know, you just read from that quote, so you might pretend like you never had a sibling so that you're not embarrassed. Um, And, and this notion of being targeted and labeled and presumed, to be criminal just because you had an older sibling or, you know, a sibling of the same age who has been arrested before. So you're now living with the not only additional stigma and embarrassment, but you're also living with the additional stigma. I mean, excuse me, the additional um, intrusion on your life, additional stops and frisks by the police, um, you know, being interviewed, interrogated by police officers because you have a sibling in the system. Um, You know, there's also a little bit of, of, you know, of resentment, you know, um, and guilt because you feel resentment um, about having a sibling who's now been arrested and has disrupted the whole family life. Um, And so, you know, young people talk about having nightmares and reliving vivid images of seeing their brother and sister handcuffed, beaten, or hauled away, you know, by, um, by a police car. And what's really tragic is that parents can rarely tell a child how long their sibling will be gone, especially in the early stages of a case. And so a child's anxiety may continue to be unresolved for extended periods of time. And so, I mean, those are just some of the emotions that are associated with having a sibling in the system. And we don't really talk about that that much.
1: Can you comment on the story of mm-hmm.
0: Um
1: Who is Digeria, And can you tell us about him and the episode that you narrate in the book about him?
0: Well, so Dejeria Becton is actually a girl um, who, um, um, and and I think this is really a a good story to to talk about because it brings in um, the ways in which girls experience, Black girls in particular experience that same sort of criminalization, the, the ways in which normal adolescent behaviors um, um, get demonized. And so Dejeria Becton was a, um, a Black girl from Texas, who had a birthday party, to be quite frank. she was from McKinney, Texas, and she lived in a private neighborhood, um, which was a predominantly white subdivision of Dallas, and it was sort of an end-of-the-year party, birthday celebration, and she invited friends from her school and um, One thing that this story tells us is the ways in which this goes back to my point about policing by proxy, the ways in which civilians don't want, um, you know, or don't want Black children around or are afraid of Black children. And so this, uh, so they had this uh, public, not a public, but they had a private pool within this private subdivision in which Degeria lived in, right? And other children had had parties in that pool. Um, But when Degeria showed up, um, there were a disproportionate number of Black children who also began to show up for this party. And white residents made uh, comments about how they didn't belong there and they couldn't use the party or the pool in that way. And lo and behold, they call the police. And um, so the second theme that arises from this story is the ways that the police officers raced in, made assumptions about these um, Black children who were at this party, made assumptions that they did not belong there, that none of them were residents when that wasn't true at all um uh and so um and then also the physical response one of the officers approaches this 15 year old girl DeJeria becton with a baton and he um, yells at her to get on the ground um and he begins to grab her wrist and drags her on the ground in her bikini Um, and um, wrestling her arms behind her back while she is screaming and crying and begging uh, for him to stop. And so um, it, it was just such a tragic response to again a normal adolescent function, a birthday party, right? Instead of thinking about alternative ways to respond to and address the conflict between neighbors by, you know, approaching and asking the young people, you know, if they live there and trying to mediate a conversation instead of automatically um, uh, making assumptions. And even one of the white students, um, there, um, there were some white children who were invited to the party, commented. In news interviews about how um, uh, disparately, how differently, I should say, that black children were being treated. Um, essentially, all the black children were being arrested and ordered to sit on the ground and placed in handcuffs, where all the white kids were told to just go home. Um, and so, it's it, that that story is a, a great example of so many of the themes that I explore in this book.
1: In what ways do females in black and brown communities? experience the trauma associated with policing differently than males?
0: So, you know, um, I go out of my way in this book to uh, to incorporate girls into the entire conversation. Um, instead of, you know, people, when I was writing the book, people would say, hey, are you gonna have a separate chapter on girls? And I said, no, I want folks to see how incredibly intertwined that trauma is. And so your question is, is you know, is a sharp one. Um, one, black girls are, um, you know, are are subject to the same historical stereotypes that criminalize them. Um, Georgetown Law School, right here where I am, Georgetown Law School's Center on Poverty and Inequality uh, did a qualitative survey of adults and their perceptions of girls and found that adults tend to view Black girls as less innocent, more adult-like than uh, white girls. They perceive Black girls to behave older than their stated age, to be more knowledgeable about adult topics, including sex, and to be more likely to take on adult roles and responsibilities. And this all helps explain why Black girls faced more severe and more frequent types of discipline in school, greater use of force by school resource officers, and harsh penalties in the juvenile legal um, systems. Um, And so the stress, I I talk about how Black girls um, who uh, are are criminalized in this ways are sent to detention and subject to those types of abuses that I just talked about, restraints, strip searches, loss of privacy, emotional isolation, all of this Um, during the most important years of their lives, these adolescent development years. And so Black girls experience the same kinds of stress and trauma as Black males, um, not only from individual stops by the police and frisks and arrests and force, but also from watching their siblings and partners and fathers and uncles being um, stripped from their communities um, and sometimes even killed. Um, They lose the companionship and intimacy of black male partners. Um, They lose uh, uh, income from you know, again, black males that are ripped from, the, from, from their homes um, who previously provided support. And, um, you know, they, they're often overlooked in this conversation. Um, about the need for police reform. And so I think about girls, uh, women, for example, like Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor and a Tatiana Jefferson are some of the most visible examples of, of Black girls who suffer from you know the trauma and, and some of the need for reform in policing in America.
1: Can you tell us the stories of Naya and Shakara? What happened yeah. to them? And can you elaborate?
0: Sure. So, um, you know, some people will remember this story. This is the story of um, of uh, Shakira Murphy, was the 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 teenager in the Spring Valley, South Carolina high school, who was purportedly playing on her cell phone or looking at her cell phone during math class, and a teacher uh, comes over and asks her, you know, to put it away. And she was slow to do so. And so the uh, teacher called in the principal um, or called in you know, uh, uh, either the vice principal or the assistant principal who uh, instead of coming him, him or himself sends in a deputy sheriff. And so the deputy sheriff comes into the classroom and literally rips Shakira Murphy out of her seat flipping the seat backwards in front of the entire class and this um, video went viral and it really shed light on the physical abuses um, that some that we see of course not all but we see among um a school police officers and uh, people You know, were outraged and just thought it was such an unnecessary use of force and abuse. And Naya Kinney is the girl who was in that classroom who recorded uh, the video. And here's what's so significant. Both of those girls got arrested. And um, both were charged, for example, with a statute called disturbing schools. Yet another example. Isn't that wild, Ari? But it's yet another example of the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors, right? Things that all kids do. And so they said that her, um, Sakaira playing on her phone and Naya recording the incident disturbed the whole class when the reality is nobody was disturbed until that deputy sheriff came into that room and ripped her out of the seat. What we learned later is that this was a math class and all the students were taking a a test. Nobody was paying attention to Shakira. And what we also learned um, very recently, long after this incident, was that Shakira was a special education student and that she had been instructed um, by her one-on-one aide that if she ever had problems or difficulty with one of her assignments, that she should reach out to her one-on-one aide. So she was using her cell phone to, to get in touch with um, or to, to text uh, that aid, so that the aide could come down and help her. But nobody wanted to listen to her. And instead they took a traditional law enforcement response to a typical adolescent um, behavior. And she was actually doing exactly what she had been instructed to do. Um, but there was violence um, and policing when we didn't need it.
1: Another story if you feel comfortable sharing, is that of Eunice Fennell. What lessons can be learned from her tragedy
0: yeah. So another one of the stories that I tell in the book is is about um, Nisi, um, and I tell Nisi's story um, really similarly to the story I tell about Khalif Browder to talk about the ways in which the, the ways in which um, uh, incarcerating children with adults is one of the absolute worst things that we can do. Um, and so Nisi Fanel was a um, uh, a a, um, a teenager. From originally, actually, she was from Southern California, but she moved out to Durham, North Carolina, and she, you know, had a traumatic childhood. Her father was addicted to drugs. Um, her, her father was abusive, and um, Niecy's mother. Ultimately, moved Nisi and her twin brother to Durham, North Carolina, to get away from that abusive uh, situation. And um, when she was in Durham, uh, Nisi, you know, made friends, new friends, new neighborhood. She's 16 years old, and she meets these uh, guys, unfortunately, who get involved in a shooting. And Nisi at the time was driving the car. And Nisi and her family and friends insist that she had no idea that there was going to be a shooting or was in no way involved with the shooting. But the local prosecutors really wanted her to be a witness against these boys. And so they arrested her. They charged her with being an accomplice to to this homicide and they put her in jail. Um, And they put her in jail with adults, right? And she's in this tiny pod um, with adult inmates, female, adult women inmates abused her. Yes, um, they, because she was Southern from Southern California, um, they, you know, took advantage of that and, you know, said that she was involved with gangs when she wasn't. um, And so there was violence, verbal threat, bullying. Um, She was taunted also by the staff um, at the facility. Um, And she cried often, you know, um, and she confided in multiple people, including her lawyer, she confided in another adult in the facility that she was thinking about taking her own life. And, you know, the facility never, the the jail, the adult jail, never uh, got her the type of mental health services that she needed um, while she was there. At some point, while she was incarcerated, her twin brother was shot and killed. Um, oh, my and goodness. Was, wow. It was awful. I mean, it's just you know, tragedy upon tragedy. And again, remember, she was a witness, right? The prosecutors were charging her as an accomplice, um, but even they, you know, did so with, with the understanding that she wasn't the shooter. It wasn't clear to them how much she knew, but she refused to snitch because she was afraid, right? Um, and so she ultimately, while in prison, unlike Khalif, who took his life after he got out of jail, Nisi finel took her life. She committed suicide hunger herself in the, in the facility. So I, you know, I, I share that story. I mean, so, you know, we've talked Arya, Aria about a lot of really tragic examples, you know, and I hope, you know, readers will still, you know, read this book, um, uh, and, and, and recognize, um, you know, uh, the importance and the relevance of the stories, but this story was relevant and important for how all teen- black teenagers are disproportionately treated, how we um, should have had a rehabilitative um, response to Nisi Fresnel, instead of locking her up, putting her you know, in solitary confinement you know, at, at various times and um, subject- subjecting her to abuse, all of these things. Um, so there's so many lessons to learn from that story.
1: If we place this problem in historical context, I was wondering if you could comment on the case of George Stinney and its relevance.
0: Yeah, so um, George Stinney is the youngest person ever executed in 20th century America. Um, and so he was 14 years old. He was a 14 year old black child, right, um, in 1944 in South Carolina. And so I, I, just as you noted, I bring in this story as a historical backdrop because I, what I want to show in the book is that America has had a long history of failing to treat black children as children, and that you know um, the the um, execution, right execution of children is considered to be barbaric all over the world and the united states of america was one of the last three countries in the world to ban or prohibit um, the execution of, of a person who committed a crime when they were age the age of 14. But George Stenney's story is, is not only about that, the execution, the disproportionate execution of Black and brown people in our country, but like the dehumanization of a 14-year-old. I don't care what a 14-year-old did that we um, would ever think that it would be appropriate to execute them. Well, of course, as was true um, in so many of uh, those early cases of, um, and even some of the contemporary cases, but early cases involving the execution of Black youth, um, Black, I mean, George Denny, by all accounts, in subsequent review, is very likely innocent. So he gets executed for something that he didn't do. And in particular, he was accused of um, brutally murdering two young girls by beating them over the head um, with a metal spike and dumping them in a muddy ditch. The reason why I wanted to tell you that is because George Stinney, I told you, was 14 years old. Um, These girls were um, white girls. And people wanted to believe that it had to be someone black um, and that it had to be a black male given all of the stereotypes and assumptions about the sexuality um, and the hypersexualization of black youth. Um, And so the the narrative that was put forth was that this 14 year old raped one of the girls, beat the two girls and threw them in a ditch. I mean, and by all accounts now, um, everybody knows it just wasn't even physically possible that he could have done such a thing, right? Um, He was a skinny little kid, didn't have the strength to do it. uh, he was forced to, uh, uh, his entire trial last, lasted two and a half hours um, with six witnesses, no transcript. Um, there was a confession that he said he confessed, the police officer said he confessed to the crime um, when there was absolutely no written record whatsoever. Um, and there was also no evidence whatsoever that e- either one of the girls had even been sexually assaulted. So so my point here is this, this narrative of fear that has been that has permeated um, uh, black youth from the founding of American society. You know, we demonize black youth in order to justify slavery, in order to justify the lynching of someone like Emmett Till, um, to justify the super predator myth that was put forth in the 1990s, and all of these incidents were ultimately, you know, disproven. Even you know, it's known now that um, it that. Emmett Till didn't even whistle, you know, or flirt with this with this this white woman. I mean, she later recanted. Um, and then this super predator myth, demonizing black children in the 1990s was recanted by you know John DiUlio, the Princeton professor who made this 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 um, narrative up or had this pseudoscientific scientific theory. Um, and he recanted it himself. But those narratives. Um, intentionally put forth now uh, live on in the American psyche uh, and, and calls all of us um, to fear Black children and lead to this over criminalization of Black kids. So I wanted to bring in George Stenney's story into the narrative just to provide that historical racial through line um, of the criminalization of Blackness and the criminalization of Black adolescents in particular um, from the founding of American society.
1: What do you recommend in regard to school reform to address some of these problems um, there's, there's a quote in your book where you write, we have the tools we need to build healthy students, successful learners, and safe schools. Now we just need to treat Black children as if they belong. Remember that we don't need police to save our schools. What suggestions do you recommend in regard to uh, school reform, in regard to what your book is detailing?
0: Yes, we, you know, as a society have really bought into this idea that law enforcement is the only way to ensure um, community safety and the only way to ensure um, school safety. And the evidence just um, speaks to the contrary. It really does. Um, And that we are actually doing more harm than good, particularly in relying on police officers to um, correct, redirect uh, discipline or even raise, if you will raise um, children. and so what I recommend is a and what the research supports is a public health approach to both community safety and school safety and so that means a a, a health-based approach that is attentive to the relationships, cultivating healthy nurturing relationships between children and adults a strategy that is trauma-informed, that acknowledges and recognizing the traumatic effects of over-policing and hyper-surveillance on adolescent development. Um, And that is attentive to the ways in which adolescent traumas or traumas that adolescents have experienced in their lives contributed to criminal behaviors. Um, So it needs to be trauma informed. It also needs to be restorative. Uh, A strategy for community safety and school safety needs to restore or repair relationships that have been breached. And um, it needs to be racially equitable. So what is that look like impractical language on the ground. It means that a public health approach to school safety will have a continuum of mental health providers for young people. It will have um, social emotional learning as a part of the curriculum, which is all about teaching young people how to engage with one another, with empathy, empathy, compassion, respect, we need vocational opportunities positive behavior interventions restorative justice mod- modules and you know even in schools where there is some evidence of real violence a lot of the traditional law enforcement um, strategies are imposed in schools where there isn't any demonstrated evidence of real violence, but in those schools where violence does exist, we need credible messengers and violence interrupters who've been demonstrated or are proven to be effective in engaging with at-risk youth.
1: Can you comment on the suffering experienced by the parents of those who are accused, arrested, and incarcerated? In what ways have they deteriorated emotionally and psychologically while their children have been imprisoned? What kinds of support, if any, is available to them? How do they cope?
0: So... um you know, I you know I, I mentioned earlier when you asked um, about uh, challenges that I experienced in writing this book that I really wanted to go out of my way to honor the voices of the parents and not speculate. Um, and so, you know, I I looked at interviews by you know Khalif Browder's mother and um, Samaria Rice, who was Tamir Rice's mother, and um, you know uh, uh, Mike Brown's mother and and father. And what we Uh, see is that um, I mean, it's the trauma is just so profound. Parents talk about nightmares um, that they have with, um, you know, even seeing their child in shackles, um, uh, never really being able to celebrate holidays anymore, really um, being devastated on birthdays. Um, just the 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 sense of agony at the loss and the and just the ways in which so many of those deaths and violence are uh, rooted in racial discrimination. And how many of those incidents involve black children who were killed um, for something that they didn't do? Tamir Rice didn't have a real gun or,,,, um, uh, uh, you know, just, Khalif Browder, you know, committing suicide after being held in prison for 3 or jail, excuse me, for 3 years for something that he did not do. And I I really wanna be clear that this book is not just about innocent children, right? But the fact that we would put even adult children, I mean, excuse me, uh, children who do commit crimes in adult facilities is devastating for parents and devastating for families, particularly because they recognize Unequivocally, they recognize that white children would not be treated the same way. And so there's a layer of that, that pain and that agony and that loss that we that we are grappling with. Um, You also asked, though, about what help and what support is available for parents. And so, so many of the parents, in fact, almost every single parent that I write about in this book, in these high profile cases, became an activist. um, And an activist around police reform and reform of the juvenile and criminal legal system. And, you know, uh, Khalif Browder's mother, Vernita Browder, um, really was a very uh, vocal spokesperson about the need for reform of solitary confinement. Confinement, for example. And in New York City, you know, solitary confinement is now um, prohibited for young people. Um, and, and people attribute it, um, some of those gains and some of the successes in reform to Vernita Browder's Uh, advocacy. Um, New York City also had a successful raise the age campaign, which um, reduced or which um, made it such that children under the age of 18 should not be tried in adult court. So things of that nature have come about as a result of youth or or excuse me, parental activism. Um, Samaria Rice started an entire foundation. Um, Number of the parents have started foundations. And so I would say there's agony and there's hope, right? There's agony and there's resilience among black parents. And so um, that would be uh, really a a powerful, powerful takeaway that everyone should have um, from this book.
1: Thank you. As we bring this interview to a close, um, what are you working on next as your current project? Uh, What are you working on now as your subsequent
0: research? So um, more than anything, Ari, I am trying to to, to convert the sort of the written text into um, action. Okay. Uh the, the reform, the, the strategies that I propose in Chapter 12 um, for, for reform and some of the things that I talked about with school-based reform, I want to convert that into action. And so we've got a number of, of projects are, um, in my office. So one, me personally, I do a number of trainings and uh, across the country for state actors, judges, prosecutors, defenders, um, probation officers, folks who are engaged in the juvenile criminal legal system, also with school systems, right, teachers and school administrators, trying to educate them around some of these issues, right, some of the research, some of the research that I personally did not know, notwithstanding the fact that I've been working with children for 26 years. So I'm doing some of that. I also um, uh, partner with the uh, my office, the Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative. We partner with the Galt Center, which was formerly known as the National Juvenile Defender Center. And we do a number of initiatives to... Um, Uh, to address these issues. We have an ambassadors for racial justice program. We have a racial justice toolkit that we make available for youth defenders across the country. So, you know, I still, you know, am writing um, and researching, but more than anything, I'm trying to spend my time converting um, these stories, these narratives and this research and these strategies for reform into action.
1: I wish you the best of luck with these righteous endeavors. Uh, they're so important, and I could not agree more with you about the importance and necessity of these initiatives. And I cannot thank you enough both for what you're doing after you've written this book and your current initiatives, and for everything you sacrifice to bring this book into fruition for us.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Ari, for having me. I really, you know, like I said, at the top of the hour, I really appreciate what you're doing and um, creating a platform um, for, you know, all of us in society to address these issues and to, and to listen. So thank you.
1: Thank you. I absolutely appreciate your time with us today. I'm blessed by how much I learned from you. And thank you on behalf of all our listeners to everything they will undoubtedly take away from your words of wisdom and the insights and stories you've shared with us. Thank you. As we bring this interview to a close, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in African-American Studies podcast. I have been in dialogue today with Chris Henning. Chris is Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown University Law School. We have been discussing her new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, published in New York by Pantheon Books 2021. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you.